On April 20th, 2001, a fighter jet from the Peruvian Air Force opened fire on what it thought was a drug smuggling plane. Drug cartels had been using small private aircraft to move massive amounts of drugs up and down the Amazon corridor. And the Peruvian government, with the help of the United States, was sending up regular patrols to intercept these airplanes and to force them to land, or in some cases, shooting them down. The plane shot down that day in 2001 actually was occupied by a missionary family named the Bowers. Husband Jim, wife Veronica, and children Corey and Charity. Gunfire sprayed the plane from behind, and the pilot, Kevin Donaldson, called in a mayday screaming, they're trying to kill us. The pilot was struck by bullet fire several times, shattering both of his legs. On fire and out of control, the pilot managed to crash land his airplane in the Amazon River down below. Wife Veronica Bowers, 35, and their seven-month-old daughter, Charity, lay dead in the back seat, killed by a single bullet. Kevin Donaldson, the, uh, the pilot, and husband Jim and their son Corey all survived the crash. At the memorial service, husband Jim addressed a church filled with friends and family, and he, he pulled out a sheet, a bullet-pointed sheet, with what he said was a list, a long list of the ways that God had provided for him and his family during this time. Congregation of 1,200 leaned forward to hear him ask this question. You tell me, was this God or not? And then he recounted detail after detail of that tragic day, including the miraculous river landing by the badly injured pilots, escaping from a burning airplane as that jet flew up and down, strafing it with gunfire. Jim told about the heroic rescue by villagers in dugout canoes, and the miraculous series of events that allowed the pilot to get to medical care. And as he recounted the story, he, he paused at the, at the point of greatest pain, the moment he realized that his wife and daughter had been killed by a single bullet that had passed through his wife and into his daughter she was holding. And he asked another question. How could something so terrible be so good? That was his question. A hush went over the church. How could something terrible be so good? A simple question, but it, but it opens up a huge divide. Does pain and suffering have purpose in our life? Could it ever be classified as good? Does God ever use our suffering for his good purposes? Now, skeptics among us might conclude that this memorial service and the conclusions that Jim Bowers arrived at was a giant collective coping mechanism, a way of pulling the wool over their own eyes, a faulty conclusion to this question. But I think it's a question that we all need to wrestle with. It's a question that's both personal and it's, and it's universal. Universal because God's, prom God's Word to us promises us that there will be trouble in this world. Troubles big and, and troubles small. Troubles caused by other people. Troubles caused by our own choices. Sometimes troubles seemingly out of the blue. And personal because it's my own story. And in a way, I'm living it out right now. Now, many of you know that our, our son had open heart surgery a couple of months ago. 
And so many in this church have been so very diligent in prayer, and Peggy and I are deeply grateful that we are part of this praying community. Open heart surgery can never be described as routine. It's a, it's a major surgery. In a Matt's case, they'd be replacing one of his heart valves with an artificial valve, repairing another valve, and replacing a large chunk of his aorta. But he's young and he's otherwise healthy, and we were told that he would fly through this surgery in just four to six hours. Well, it didn't turn out that way. The surgery instead lasted nearly 11 hours. And it required the surgeon to make the the critical and the very dangerous decision to place Matt back onto heart-lung bypass machine to do further repairs. In the end, Matt's heart and body had reached the very limit of what they could endure. And the surgical team struggled to remove him from bypass and to restart his heart. It was after 11 p.m. and we were finally able to see him. He was completely sedated. A ventilator was doing his breathing for him, and there was a machine in place to help assist pump his blood, and no less than 15 medications dripped into his IV. His life hung in the balance. So how could something so terrible be so good? And this is personal for for many of you here today, because as we gather together, we know that there are those who are in the middle of troubles, and some of them are deeply tragic, deeply painful. You've discovered, perhaps, that your spouse has been unfaithful. Your children have turned their back on you, or they've, they've turned their back on God. Your careers and family have been blown up because of the effects of addiction in your family. Diseases and accidents have have cut life short. Financial burdens have have piled up to a point that you are uh, without any hope at all. Depression or anxiety has crippled you and stolen your joy. All of that and more is happening in real time in this place today with those joining us online. As a pastor, I have sort of a front row seat to a lot of these difficulties facing our congregation. But as I look out at you, the, the full weight of it is oh, it's largely hidden. I invite you to look around. Look around. We all look like we're okay. Perhaps this will help. These are national statistics. 26% of you suffer from some effects of mental illness including 8% depression, 12% anxiety, and 3% post-traumatic stress disorder. 10% of you here today and joining us online are suffering the effects of addiction to drugs or alcohol in your family. 4% of you will get a divorce this year. All of that and more is happening in real time today in this room. If that's where you're at or or the memory of it is so raw that you're reliving it in your emotions right now, then this question, how could something so terrible be so good, probably hits a nerve. You may be bracing yourself for a a message that seems largely out of touch or or largely out of reach. You're worried that I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to encourage you to obey the Bible's command, repeated calls to pursue your joy. And that's simply a bridge too far. So what do we say to how could something so terrible be so good? It may seem like the answer is unknowable. 
may seem like the answer forever will mean a mystery. It may seem like the answer is, is some sort of cosmic secret. Well, you're in good company because there was a follower of Jesus named Paul, and he called this a secret as well, except he said that he's, well, he's learned the answer to the secret. Are you curious, skeptical, or hurting today? Then let's turn together to God's Word to us. It's alive, it's active, and it's true. Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church that he started in a, in a small town called Philippi, what's now modern-day Greece, and he wrote it when he was in prison for preaching the gospel. That's sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And towards the end of the letter, he's giving them some final advice on how to live out their life in faith. He encouraged them to be gentle, to avoid being anxious, to pray about everything with, with thanksgiving. And then he asked them to turn their minds towards things that are noble and right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. And finally, he thanks this small congregation for helping him financially his ministry. This is what he wrote. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. I know, I know. I have learned the secret of being content. So what is this secret, this, this knowledge that can help us get to the question, how could something so terrible be so good? What is the secret of being content in any and every situation? In the end, the secret turns out really not to be a secret at all. What Paul means when he says that he's learned a secret is that he's uncovered something. He's revealed something that was formally hidden to us. And because he's uncovered it, it's now in plain view for all of us to see. Not secret knowledge, but revealed truth. Key truth that's found in Scripture. And recorded truth that we find in the Bible is meant to be learned by us as well. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, has revealed it to us. It's, it's right there for us to use and to benefit from. So do you want to train yourself how to be content in good times and in bad? The Word of God and the book that we call the Bible, that's our textbook. And Paul, in his letter to the Philippian church, will reveal several keys to contentment, things that he's discovered. His, his first key is this. Life with Jesus provides contentment in times of trial. This is what he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. What is it that Paul's learned? I can do all this through him, that's Jesus, who gives me strength. Paul's learned the source of any strength he has in this world, and that source is Jesus. It's something he's learned, something that he knows Something that is mysterious enough that he still calls it a secret. Paul's clear here that when times are good and when times are bad, he is content. And everything that he does, he does within the certainty that Christ is the source of his strength. 
Strength for well-fed, strength for hunger. Life with Jesus provides contentment in times of trial. This key to contentment is found really throughout all of Scripture. Paul reminds us of the same truth in his letter to the Ephesians when he says this, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then in a letter he wrote to a good friend of his named Timothy, he said this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength. And in a second letter to Timothy, very similar, he says, you then, my son, be strong. How? In the grace that is in Jesus Christ. This key to contentment is also personal and universal. It's universal because God's word promises us, again, promises us that in this world there will be trouble. Trouble's big, trouble's small. Trouble's caused by choices that we make. Trouble's caused by choices others make. And trouble's sometimes seemingly out of the blue. And personal because it's my own story. As we sat in the waiting room, as our son Matt was in surgery, the expected four to six hour time frame came and went with the only update that we got was an occasional text that said procedure is still underway. As minutes turned to hours, Peggy and I knew that something had gone wrong. Something unexpected had happened. And fear and and panic crept in. I felt powerless and weak as a dad. Our lifeline during this time was the fact that, that Peggy and I had had many conversations in the weeks leading up to that day. Really conversations since the beginning of our marriage. Conversations about what it truly meant to trust God with the outcome, what it really meant to lean on the truth that life with Jesus provides contentment in times of trial. Our pastor says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. All things, good things, bad things. We can do all things always and only because God is the source of our strength. Fear and and panic and powerlessness and weakness, well, it faded into the background and it was replaced in my heart with a sense of mysterious peace, contentment, possible only through Jesus. That's what kept us going that day. And as we search the Bible for further keys to contentment, we don't have to look any further than this same little book to the Philippians. Over and over, Paul has recorded his observations related to what he's learned about contentment. He has recorded the truth that he's uncovered. And remember, he's writing this from a prison cell. He's endured great suffering over time. But prison was not meant to be a distraction for Paul. He does not want us to pity him because of his imprisonment. Because Paul clearly sees the value in it. He understands the potential of it. He has experienced the worst of hardship and suffering. And and he knew that in the midst of suffering and hardship, the gospel would not be stopped. The truth of Jesus would always march on. You and I don't naturally react to trouble in our life that way, do we? Speed bumps in our lives especially major troubles, do not naturally bring out the best in us. When we're faced with difficult times, you don't naturally overflow with with optimism, compassion, and love for others. Without God's grace, suffering, well, it makes us selfish. It makes us miserable. 
For Paul, the grace of God works a miracle in the middle of his mess. And he sees nothing but opportunities to spread the gospel, to proclaim the glory of God. And Paul's advice to us today is to remember a life with Jesus provides contentment in times of trials. Here's a second key to contentment. Belief in Jesus and suffering is a two-for-one gift from God. This is the truth that Paul gives us. He says, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Two things granted to us. Two things that are granted or or gifted to us by God's loving hands. To believe. And that's a great gift. It feels like a gift. Full of grace resulting in eternal life. A very good granting. A very good gift. But then there's this, this second thing that's gifted us by God's loving hand. And that's to suffer for him. Paul wants us to understand that there is a corollary between believing in Jesus and suffering for Jesus, a sort of two-for-one gift of grace from God. And this, too, is personally universal, universal because no one makes it out of this world unaffected by pain and difficulty, personal because for many of us, making sense of suffering in our life as we sit here today may seem like an impossibility. And I want to be clear here, it's most certainly not my place to assign meaning to your suffering. It's not anyone's place to assign meaning to your suffering. But if you believe, if you've put your allegiance in Jesus Christ, then you need to trust in the truth that this is a two-for-one deal and that somehow, some way, Christ benefits both when you believe in him and when you suffer for him. This two-for-one gift of grace is for the sake of Christ, it says, for the glory of Christ, to magnify Christ. It's also my story. During the first few days as we held Matt's hands and we held vigil by his bedside, doctors were concerned that there had been been, uh, neurological damage done to Matt in the long hours on bypass. He was largely unresponsive. He seemed to stare right past us if he looked at us at all. Long hours and little rest added to our stress. We were all suffering in the unknown. Before we knew the answer to the question, would Matt be okay? We were very aware of the two-for-one gift of faith and suffering. Again, not my place to answer for you, but, but I can answer for myself. Why did God allow that suffering into my life? To feel, to understand, to grasp that God desired us to trust him in the unknown. Deep down, settled faith that whenever amazing outcome there was or whatever horrifying moment lay ahead of us, we would trust in God. Belief in Jesus and suffering is a two-for-one gift from God. Then Paul has a third key to contentment. God can and will use our pain for his good purposes. 
Paul writes to his friends in Philippi, he says this, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. In this passage, what's, what's happened to Paul is that he's been imprisoned. He's been beaten. He's been deprived of all sorts of things. He's been brutalized. And through that pain and misery and how, how Paul responded to pain and misery, Paul sees God's good purpose when everyone, including his captors, are witnesses to his faith. And Paul says that witnessing, it advances the gospel. His misery, his suffering in prison directly results in God's kingdom being advanced. And no, we don't get to hear the details of this story, how it all shook out. Did the entire imperial guard place their trust in Christ and have their eternal destiny changed forever? That would be awesome, but we just don't know. Maybe it had a ripple effect and it was just a single person that heard of this, maybe second or third hand, and their life would be forever changed. We just don't know. Perhaps that's the point. Because oftentimes in our Christian witness to a watching world, it has kingdom-building effects that are completely invisible to us. But if we hold on to this key of contentment, this promise, God can and will use our pain for his good purpose. And like the others, this promise is both universal and personal. Universal because if you've put your trust in Christ and you're living your life in allegiance to him, a watching world will notice even if you don't. Personal, because I believe it's one of the most deeply joy-filled privileges of being a follower of Jesus when you get to just catch a glimpse of God being glorified through your own pain. When you see his church, his, his kingdom strengthened because of your witness. During the weeks we were coming and going from St. Mary's Hospital, we had many opportunities to share stories of, of God's faithfulness and love in our life. We visited and we prayed for people in, in lobbies and in hallways and waiting rooms and elevators. Once with perfect strangers, we prayed in the middle of St. Mary's lobby. Our pain and difficulty was actually an amazing on-ramp to sharing our faith. At one point, a man and his daughter came up to my wife Peggy and Matt as they were out in the courtyard at St. Mary's, and, and this man had noticed the scar on Matt's chest, and, and he came up just because he wanted to give his own encouragement of faith to Matt and Peggy, and they were encouraged. The next Sunday, as I was greedy people out front here, as I often do, a man approached me, and he started telling me a story about how he'd run into this young guy in a courtyard at St. Mary's Hospital, and this guy's mom had invited him to church. And, and I interrupted him to tell him that this all sounded strangely familiar. And we had a great laugh together. And while I don't know exactly how, I am convinced that the gospel was advanced that day. God's kingdom grows when we, when we leverage our difficult circumstances to share faith with a world who's desperate for good news. Many of you here have experienced extraordinary pain in your life. And some of you have been spared the very worst. But all of us can tell a story of God's provisions to us during times of trouble. 
And a watching world is watching us most closely as we walk through struggles. Struggles like challenging children, chronic pain, ailing parents, a marriage in trouble. These things in our lives, well, we wouldn't choose them for ourselves, but these are the places that others are, are watching us most closely. And they become a sweet opportunity, a sweet opportunity to share how Christ has met our needs in the midst of suffering. You see, deep suffering requires deep comfort from God and equips us to give deep comfort to others. We may not know all the details yet of God's purposes in our suffering, but we can rest assured that he can and he will use our suffering to prepare us to comfort others. God can and will use our pain for his good purposes. Here's our fourth key to contentment. In the middle of the struggle with a thankful heart, ask God for what you need. Paul tells us this. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Paul starts out with, don't be anxious about anything. That's a tall order. In the middle of your misery, don't be anxious about anything. In the worst news that you've ever received, don't be anxious about anything. In the ordinary disappointments in life, don't be anxious. But he provides a powerful reminder for anyone who is in the middle of distracting anxiety should bring us up short because he starts out by saying, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. It's one of the most common refrains in all of Scripture. Do not fear, the Lord is near. Hundreds of times in the Bible. And here Paul wants us to pause because he knows that anxiety is a powerful distraction. Don't become paralyzed in the middle of your misery. Don't forget what you know in the middle of your misery. Don't be anxious. Why? Because the Lord is near. And once we are settled into an awareness of God's presence in our lives, we're encouraged to approach him in prayer. Include the ways that we're thankful. Give God all the requests that we have in the middle of the struggle with a thankful heart. Ask God for what it is you need. A few days after surgery, Matt was still in intensive care, and he was struggling to say more than a word or two. For the first time, I was taking a, a bit of a break, and I was having coffee with a friend on his deck when I received a text. Matt was being rushed down for a CT scan. The doctors feared that he'd suffered a stroke. Fear and pain instantly flooded me as I headed to the car to make my way to the hospital. Do not be anxious about anything was not my reality in the moment. But for 15 minutes as I drove through traffic, I prayed. I remembered. I recounted some special moments that we've had as a family. And I was thankful. I was deeply thankful for the life and the family that God has provided me. And then I poured out my request. Let my boy be okay. Over and over and over again for 15 minutes as I made my way to the hospital. 
Paul follows up in the very next verse with our, our fifth key to contentment. This is it. Trust that God will give you peace. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you recognize that God is near, if you cry out to him with your requests firmly planted in thanksgiving, then this will happen. This will happen. Wherever you are today, in the good times or the bad, you can stand on this promise. God is pleased to give you his peace. And if that seems impossible where you're sitting today to feel that peace, I think Paul gets you because he assures you that this kind of peace is beyond our understanding. Paul gets you. I think he wants you to marvel that, that when peace does come in the middle of trouble, you will easily and very naturally understand where it came from. It's a peace that only God can provide. And then Paul says this kind of peace will guard our hearts, which is just another way of saying contentment. In the midst of the trouble, trust that God will give you peace. And finally, our sixth key to contentment is this. Contentment comes in community. Paul encourages us today where we're sitting right now to bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see, in suffering, our, our instinct is to turn inward. We tend to isolate ourselves, to, to cut ourselves off, to protect ourselves from, from further pain in our lives. And it's an understandable instinct. People are messy. And when we invite messy people into our trouble, it opens ourselves up to, to just being unsettled. We fear that adding messy people will only add to our grief and not alleviate it. But this isn't God's design. Your walk through troubles in your life is not meant to be a walk alone. This church, this gathering is not meant to be a collection of people suffering alone. Though it may feel like it to you today, Paul confronts this kind of thinking when he encourages us to bear one another's burdens. If you've been hanging out with our church for a while, you've heard us say over and over and over again, get in a group, join a team. Get in a group and join a team, which is our way of saying, bear one another's burdens. If you've been on the fence about this one for a while, can I encourage you, this is a big deal. It's what we want for you. It's what God wants for you. This church is meant to be a safe place to land for anyone, especially those that are burdened. Getting involved with a, a small group of people who are truly there for you. Gathering weekly with a small group of people just to do life together. And then join a team. Serving alongside other people who have the common purpose of, of building his kingdom. Contentment comes in community. And this is universal and personal as well. Universal because God designed all of us for community. Personal because well, for Peggy and I, having a collection of friends in our small group and a group of friends in our teams that we serve together on has made all the difference for us. Now, this has been true for years, but it has been most particularly true the last couple months as this small group of people have just surrounded us with prayer, practical help, we have found that contentment comes in community. 
I want so much for each of you here today to know the contentment that only Jesus can provide. Can I commend to you to, to follow Paul's example as he worked out his contentment in his suffering? A life with Jesus provides contentment in times of trial. Belief in Jesus and suffering is a two-for-one gift from God. God can and will use our pain for his good purpose. In the middle of the struggle, with a thankful heart, ask God for what we need. Trust that God will give you his peace. And finally, contentment comes in community. As we gather in Matt's room to hear the results of his CT scan, we were once again in this place of the unknown, fully realizing that it could be very bad news. We struggled again with what it meant to be content in the middle of a struggle. We'd done our best to place the whole mess into God's hands. Matt is home now. No stroke. After four weeks in the hospital, he's working through the hard things because he knows the secret to contentment. I was too early to tie a neat, tidy bow on this season of our life. There's a lot of hard work ahead and, and plenty of unknowns about what the future might look like. But Matt sent us a, a selfie the other day after he had finished walking a mile, and he looked great. Yeah. And he has a goal. He has a goal that he's working towards, and this is it. In four weeks, he's going to hold the hand of his fiancée, and he's going to walk down the beach in Torrey Pines, California, and God willing, I'll pronounce them husband and wife. Today, where you're sitting, and in whatever way your life is a struggle, don't assume that it's a detour. Squint your eyes. Catch a glimpse of a blessing in the middle of your stubble. Troubles may seem to turn your life upside down in a hundred different ways, but God delights in using our troubles to challenge us, to motivate us, to greatly magnify our too small vision of him. And God desires that you tell your story because somebody, probably many people, need to see you suffer well for Jesus. They need to see you praising his holy name when life is crumbling around you because soon enough their own trials will arrive and they will remember. They'll remember you. They'll remember examples of Christians that they witnessed suffering well. Today in this place, I know all too well that there are lots of folks that are carrying a burden Lots of folks who are busted up and broken. And many of you have faith, but you've not yet broken through to promises of contentment in your life. You can't possibly see how your circumstances can contain any good. And some of you are here today deep in your personal pain. You've not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ. And my hope for you is that, that you've opened that door just a crack. And if that's you, can I encourage you today? You can put your trust in Jesus Christ and you can claim these promises that he has for you today. So believer or curious or skeptical, can I ask all of you to make a walk to the cross after services today? There will be pastors and others there waiting to pray with you, to encourage you, to answer any questions you have. And if you're out here today and you've, you've reached the end of yourself, and you want to put your trust in Christ, there will be people there that will stand shoulder to shoulder with you.
You're not alone. 